Well, I do invite you to open to 1 Samuel chapter 28. One of these days, I'm going to be moving the TV over and it's going to fall, and I'm going to have a new, most embarrassing story to tell. 1 Samuel 28, in a few moments, I'll, I'll read. In 2005, a UCLA professor named Jared Diamond, he released a book called Collapse. It was a fascinating look at what led to the collapse of ancient societies. And so he would follow like the Norse in Greenland, who established actually for a couple hundred years a, a base of operations there, but eventually it, it collapsed. And they were, they were too far from their supply chain, the weather was too harsh, a variety of things led to that. He talked about the Mayan society in Central America. He talked about the society in Easter Island that built those huge stone statues and then collapsed not long after that. But in this chapter, we see not a collapse of a society, but a collapse of a man, a particular man, the collapse of Saul. And we've seen this coming. If you've been here for these weeks, we've seen this developing. If you've been reading through 1 Samuel on your own, you've seen this in chapter after chapter, this decline of a man who started strong, literally, he was physically a powerful, a head taller than all the others. He led the people out into battle in chapter 11, but by chapter 13, and certainly by chapter 15, it's, it's downhill, it's decline. And in this chapter, it's collapse. Not fully brought about. He, he actually won't lose his life until the next scene that we see him, which is in chapter 31. But it's all but concluded here. This is a story, a true story, but it's a story that God has given us in Scripture and actually devoted quite a bit of real estate to. When you think about the fact that we have 20-some chapters devoted to the fall of Saul and David's rise at the same time, and actually so many of these chapters hit on the same themes, this lack of repentance by Saul, this unwillingness to turn, the, the self-preservation and pride. We see God has given us so much information there for a reason. It's something that we are to learn from it. It certainly fits by setting the stage for David, who would, of course, set the stage for Christ. But it's something we can learn from this life. We often learn best through stories. You guys know you can tell a, a young child something like, hey, s slow and steady you know, is the best way to get through a project. Or you can tell them the story of like, the tortoise and the hare. right? And kids learn from that. They're like, oh, I see. They remember it. Well, likewise, we can read in Scripture something like this out of Proverbs. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And God teaches us through that. But we can also then go to the unfolding of Saul's life over 20 chapters. And we can see how his pride, his unwillingness to turn his unwillingness to take responsibility for his wrongs, his pride led directly to his destruction. And we can be warned. Or we can look ahead to a passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that warns us about two types of sorrow when it comes to sin. It says there's a, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. We can read about these two kinds of sorrows, a, a sorrow over sin that leads to repentance and one that just leads to death. That is not a true sorrow. 
but we see it in Saul. We see it in, in like this slow motion car wreck that just goes on and on and on. And we're warned. We're warned. We'll be reading through this section by section, kind of stopping along the way. We'll start with just the first two verses. Chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. Now, it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. What we see in this passage, these first couple verses, is a crisis for David. But it's a crisis that is interrupted in the way these chapters are put together. This is really the culmination of chapter 27, where in chapter 27, David flees Israel, goes across the border to their dreaded neighbors, the Philistines, and for more than a year, pretends to be on their side. And he pretends to be a servant of Achish, their king, and he pretends to be attacking the Israelites, where really he's actually attacking other Philistine cities. And so this has been going on, and then we get to the beginning of chapter 28, and the Philistines now, with David with them, have lined up for battle against Israel. And it's going to change scenes for a moment. The rest of the chapter, actually, it'll change scenes and it'll turn to Saul. And then it'll come back to David in chapter 29. So we're only given two verses here, really, at the beginning of chapter 28. And then that crisis is interrupted. But I want you to really get a sense of this crisis because it sets the stage, really, for a contrast with Saul. David has been pretending to be with the Philistines, but he's coming to a point where he can pretend no longer. He's with them. They're lined up for battle against the Israelites. And so as we're reading it, we're left with this question of what will he do? Will he actually fight against the Israelites, that he is their anointed king? Or will Achish find out that he's been pretending this whole time? What's going to happen? We're reading it, and then the credits roll, the end of the episode, come back next week. Like if this was a, if this was a series you were watching, that would be the cliffhanger and you'd be like, what? I need to stay up till midnight to finish watching it or wait till next week. I've got to know what happens. It turns from that, though, to a much greater crisis. That's Saul's crisis. It's the same event, but now turned to his side, to what's going on with Saul. Let's pick up now in verse 3. We'll read verses 3 to 6 that describe this crisis. Now Samuel was dead. And all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem. Saul gathered all Israel together and they camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim, or by prophets. There's really three parts of this crisis. Samuel's dead. And that's been Saul's go-to guy. Samuel's dead. That happened a couple chapters earlier, but it's brought up here to highlight the position he's in. Who will he go to for counsel? No more Samuel. Samuel's dead. 
the Philistines are gathered. They're lined up for battle in a place that will cut off the northern part of Israel from the southern part of Israel. So if they win this battle, it will be a crisis, not just for Saul, but for the whole nation. And in the midst of this, the Lord is silent. He will not answer Saul. Let's walk through each of those pieces a little bit more. Samuel's dead. Saul would go to him throughout his life. Even as Samuel was calling him to repentance and Saul refused, he still would go to Samuel. What do I do? What do I do? Now, there's no Samuel to go to anymore. Notice there's a little nugget, though, that's dropped in here that almost seems out of place. Verse 3. It says, and Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. Samuel's dead. Oh, and by the way, these mediums and spiritists, Saul has removed. These are referring to people that were in the land that claimed to be able to contact the dead on behalf of the living. And it was something that consistently the Old Testament said, no, this ought not to be done. This is wrong. They should be removed from the land, in fact. And Saul had done that to his credit. Sometime earlier in his ministry or in his leadership as king, he had done that. But, but I want you to see that Scripture is really clear on this. comes up when we read what happens later. Leviticus 19.31. Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out or, be, or out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. God had been very clear. Do not turn to these who claim to be able to talk, talk to the dead. That, that, is, that is out of bounds for the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy, it was even more clear. Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 11. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That's talking about child sacrifice. He says, no, that is not right. Do not do that. But then he goes on to say, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. It's very, very clear. Do not do this. And Saul, to his credit, obeyed. And he removed them from the land. Kind of put a pin there. Remember that. But then it also says the Philistines gathered, and he was afraid. Verse 5, the Philistines uh, when he saw their camp, his heart trembled. We've learned that when Saul is afraid, he often does the wrong thing. He doesn't bring that to the Lord. In his fear, he compromises. And the Lord was silent. In these various ways that he would often direct his people in the Old Testament, the dreams or urums, or, which was kind of a casting of stones, or the prophets, he doesn't answer. It's a bit, though, like the situation of somebody who's made a train wreck of their life by consistently stiff-arming God, done wrong, done wrong, they know it's wrong, they rebel against God, and then the consequences start to come, and they seek the Lord, not to seek the Lord, but because they don't like these consequences. And, and God has said different times that I, I will not hear that. It's not that he doesn't want to hear from us. But he says, I will not hear that prayer because we need to deal with the most significant thing. This is a... It's a warning that continues, and it's perhaps surprising for us sometimes. For example, the word says to husbands, this is in 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. 
What a striking warning. It says men who, rather than trying to understand their wives and live with them according to that, they use their greater size, their greater strength to oppress and suppress them and harm them, not showing them honor. It says your prayers will not be answered. Your prayers will be hindered. That should should shock us if we're husbands. That should be a warning to us. Or more generally, Psalm 66, 17 to 18. I cried to him with my mouth. He was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I'm wanting to hold on to this sin and say, I want this, and then kind of giving a token prayer to God, he says, no, you need to deal with this sin. You cannot regard this. You cannot hold on to this and then come to me. We must deal with the sin. So that is what Saul is facing. That is what he's facing. He's not dealing ultimately with this sin that he's holding on to, and yet he's asking God, how do I win this battle? And God is silent. So Saul comes up with a solution, and it is a tragic solution, starting in verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up from the earth. He said to her, What is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Some places, especially in the Old Testament, we read, we get done reading, and we just go, what? (laughs) What is happening here? Questions kind of pop up, like, is this this, this really Samuel? Is this like a, a ghost? Is this... I mean, it's possible to contact the dead. I, I thought we just read that that was wrong to do. Is it, is it okay here? Is it approving of what Saul's doing? Does this woman really have the ability to like, conjure up the dead? I mean, those are understandable questions. And part of the reason I chose this chapter out of the other ones we could do is I wanted to speak to that a little bit. How we're to understand this strange situation. But I want you to note first that the main thing is not answering those questions it's what it's revealing about Saul that he knew this was wrong we know he knew it was wrong because he had previously gotten rid of all of these who were engaged in this or at least so he thought and yet in his desperation he goes to them anyways he knows it's sin and he does it anyways not only does he go to her knowing it's sin he uses religious language along the way When she brings up her understandable concern that she might get in trouble for this, look at verse 10. It says, Saul vowed to her, by the Lord, which is God's covenant name, Yahweh, 
saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you. He's getting wrapped up in this pagan witchcraft and yet invoking the name of the Lord, using pious language all along the way. It shows the condition of his heart that he's willing to still use this religious language even as he's involved in this sinful action. Well, as far as some of these common questions, is it really Samuel? The text seems to indicate that it is, that he really did in some way appear here. Perhaps along the same lines that uh, later in the Bible, in Matthew 17, Jesus would be with some of his disciples up on a mountain, and, and Moses and Elijah, the Lord would allow to appear to them, even though they'd already died. It seems that the Lord uh, allowed Samuel to really appear here. And yet, this woman seems just as surprised as everybody else. This woman who's calling him up is shocked and cries out in a loud voice. Well, perhaps it's because she's used to this being a fake. And now the real thing happens. Perhaps it's because she realizes that it's Samuel. And this is wrong, what she's been doing. And so she's afraid in that moment. The words that Samuel uses are consistent with his words. Other conversations he's had with Saul. So that only supports that this is really happening as far as it really is Samuel. But it's not encouraging this practice. In fact, far from it. We go with the clear passages of Scripture that say, no, this is out of bounds. And then we see a description of Saul doing it, but not in a good way, right? It's part of his decline. It's not a positive thing he's doing. In fact, it certainly, as we'll see in a moment, doesn't work out well for him. No description is given for how the woman does this, probably because he doesn't want us to have a fascination with these activities. But it's part of his overall downfall. Saul appears, or Samuel appears, and his words are not what Saul's expecting. Saul's wanting probably an answer. Yes, fight these people here. No retreat. He's expecting something like that. But what he gets instead is a stinging rebuke. A stinging rebuke. Let's pick up in verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may make known to me what I should do. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. That is, they would die. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. If Saul is wanting guidance in this conflict, that is not what he gets. Samuel's message essentially is, Saul, why are you asking me? The Lord has simply done what he said he would do. The Lord said he would take the kingdom from you, and that is what he's doing. The Lord is actually going to give Israel over to the Philistines, and Saul, you and your sons will die tomorrow, which is what happened. It's, it's not until chapter 31, but it's in the next day in the narrative. Back when Saul was told that the kingdom would be taken from him, Samuel used what was 
perhaps a surprising comparison to Saul and Saul's sin where he, he, he disobeyed. If you weren't here that Sunday, we looked at chapter 15, Tom did actually, about how God had given specific commands for what Saul was to do, and, and he disobeyed those. And, and Samuel, part of his rebuke was to say this, the re, for rebellion, this is 1 Samuel 15, 23, rebellion, what Saul did, disobeying the Lord, is as the sin of divination, which is what he's doing here. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. How ironic that although this was his initial sin, this thing that was by comparison is exactly what he's doing now. So you were rebelling, and in that continued deterioration of your soul and your practice, you're now involved in this very thing that perhaps... Perhaps Saul would have seen this as wrong at the time. Perhaps that's why it was shocking. It's like, what do you mean rebellion is as divination? I haven't called up the dead. And that's exactly what he does. Saul seeks out counsel during a crisis. But he does not get what he wants. Is it wrong to seek God in a crisis? Is it wrong to seek God in the midst of a crisis? To cry out to him when life seems bleak and hopeless? Of course not. God wants us to come. That, that is not why Saul is rebuked here. Not that he's in crisis and then seeks God. In fact, God often uses crisis to get our attention. And maybe that's the situation you're in right now. C.S. Lewis said it so well. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Often, our life goes down in a series of crises until we finally cry out to God. And I see him getting our attention, and that is good, when what we do is we turn to him. Unfortunately, too many people in that moment, they turn to God just to get relief from the immediate pain. One author addresses it this way. He says, God often uses those moments to shake us up and open our eyes to our true need. Many people trace their first steps with Christ to a major crisis in their lives. The danger, however, is that we are prone to see God as our vehicle to avoid pain, suffering, or hell. In that case, we do not want God on his terms. We want whatever he can give us. It's not wrong to seek God in crisis. It is good to seek God in crisis. But if your life has gotten to that point where you feel like you're at the bottom, don't merely be satisfied with just trying to climb a little bit out. Like God wants you. He wants your heart. He wants you to turn from him. And that is what Saul is consistently not doing. This chapter wraps up with a few other verses that are also perhaps surprising for us to see, but I think it illustrates his weakness in this moment and his total collapse. Starting in verse 20. Then Saul immediately fell full length upon the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. Also there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day and all night. The woman came to Saul and saw that he was terrified and said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you, and I have taken my life in my hand, and I have listened to your words which you spoke to me. So now also, please listen to the voice of your maidservant, and let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. However, his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to them. So he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly slaughtered it and took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread from it. She brought it before Saul and his servants and they ate. 
Then they arose and went away that night. The next time we see Saul is when he's killed. Why are these few verses here? I mean, can, can you picture this scene, though? Here's the king of Israel, stood a head taller than everybody else, their mighty leader, and now he's in this was presumably a poor woman's house, like a petulant child he won't eat. He's finally goaded into eating. He gets up and he just sits on the corner of her bed. She makes this meal, probably takes a couple hours by the time she kills this animal and cooks it and feeds him, and he's just sitting there. And then they leave. And that's the way that Saul's life until his death, that's kind of how his collapse is pictured. Why does God give us so much information about this? Why does he not just in one few, you know, one small section say, Saul refused to repent, he continued in his sin, therefore the Lord removed him, and David became king. It could have been that simple, but it doesn't. It gives chapter after chapter after chapter, about 18, 19 chapters of his decline, and often the same themes over and over again. And I think it's, because we need to take this warning very seriously. We, we, we need to not just skim through it like we might be tempted to do if it was just a quick read. But instead, we, now centuries later reading this, must take seriously this extended object lesson on shallow repentance. In fact, we've covered this several Sundays in a row. If you've, if you've been here uh, each of these Sundays, going back to when Saul, uh, Tom was in chapter 15, this is a theme we've continued to see, and, and it almost can feel like, we're talking about this again, <laughs> again. But, but our commitment to preaching is that the big idea of the passage becomes the big idea of the message. And if this is the theme that the Lord shows fit to show us again and again and again, it's because we need to, we need to listen, and we keep coming back to it. So I want to, I want to develop this a little bit. I want to make sure we have an understanding of what repentance is. This is a definition I saw recently that I liked. I feel like it captures some of these elements. It says repentance is turning. That's the essential heart of it. Repent, to repent is to turn, to turn, to turn from sin to God, it's to turn. It's turning to God in faith, Away from sin, resulting in a change of heart that leads to a change of action. It's more than just cutting off some actions. It's an act of faith. It's saying, God, I don't want this, this sin, whatever it might be. I want you. I'm turning to you. It's not saying, I'm going to fully get rid of all this. I'm going to clean my life up, and then you'll accept me. You'll take me in. No, no. It's to say, I'm a mess. This is wrong. You say it's wrong. I want to turn from it. I want you. And whether that's somebody initially coming to saving faith in Christ or or, or as an ongoing pattern for a believer as we continue to need to repent as things come up. It's what Jesus talked about when he said, even in Mark 1 at the very beginning, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We often focus on belief, and appropriately so. Repentance is not something additional to that. It's not a, a work. In addition to believing, you have to do these certain works. It's a flip side of the same coin. I'm repenting and I'm believing at the same time. I'm saying what I'm believing in is Jesus to save me from my sin, 
And I'm acknowledging I really have sin that I need to be saved from. And I don't want that. I want you. And it's for the believer in an ongoing way to say, Lord, I've messed up. And I'm not going to downplay it. I'm not going to pretend it's not there. I'm going to come to you in faith, believing that you accept me in. And there's many ways that we can give a counterfeit to that. And that's what we see in Saul. Something that almost seems like this real turning, but not. Not. One of the things we saw today was that false repentance or a shallow repentance can be hidden by pious language. He, he comes in an act that we know is sin and he knows is sin by coming to this woman that was a medium. But he uses the name of the Lord. He says, the, 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 the Lord, uh, in the name of the Lord, the, you know, the, the Lord will not bring harm to you. He's using the name of the Lord twice there in verse 10 in that sentence. He's using pious language, but it is not reflective of his heart we can too easily hide sin by saying other right things. Uh, Listen to a great message on this recently by a guy named Josh Kirk. And he was a, he's a pastor, but he's talking back about a time when he was in seminary. And as he went through seminary, this grad school, to prepare to be a pastor, he got a pattern of lying and cheating through assignments. That, that he justified it. I'm too busy. I was surprised by this test. It wasn't what I thought. And so he lied and he cheated over and over again. And he felt guilty, but the cost seemed too high to acknowledge it. You know, am I going to be kicked out of school? I'm never going to be a pastor. My wife is going to be ashamed, on and on and on. So rather than repent of that, he, he tried to double down on other things. He would get up extra early to study the Bible. And he made sure that he was talking about the Lord to his kids and his wife. But inwardly, his soul was decaying because he knew what he was doing was wrong. But he wasn't turning. The cost still seemed too high. And as he goes on, eventually he realized that this is the height of hypocrisy. He must deal with this. He came and he confessed to his wife, to his various teachers, to the administration. He ended up having to take some time off of school and then coming back and finishing. And yet it was... This idea of, of hiding behind even pious language that still got, stood out to me. It can be an act of false repentance. False repentance is shown by a pattern of unchained behavior. We see this again and again through Saul. That he seems to say the right things. David, you're right. I'm wrong. David, God has given you the kingdom. David, I'm sorry. And then the next chapter, he picks up the spear and he chases David again. And then he says, but David, I'm sorry. But then he picks up the spear and he chases him again. He says the right words but there's a pattern of unchanged behavior. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, it says, He who conceals, that is, hides his transgressions, which is another word for sin, he hides these things, will not prosper. This man that I told you about, he was not prospering in terms of his heart as he lied and cheated and concealed. He felt his just that down, that discouragement, that corrosive effect. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Confession is to acknowledge, to to speak the truth about sin, to agree with God about sin. To forsake is to abandon, to leave, to leave behind or synonyms for it. It's not just saying, I'm sorry, And then continuing and continuing and continuing. Now, of course, will we continue to struggle with certain things? Yes. 
But, but this intention here is to say, no, I want to turn from this, and I want to turn to you, and I'm committed to that. That's what we consistently did not see in Saul, and that's what a shallow repentance today often lacks. We say we're sorry, but we just do it again, and again, and again, and again, with no commitment, no desire, honestly, to deal with that and to turn. But I want you to notice here, when we do this, when we confess and forsake, what do we get? Compassion. Compassion. One more thing on false repentance, and I want to come back to that word. False repentance seeks to avoid consequences without confronting hard issues. Again, that was Saul. He wanted the kingdom. He wanted to continue to rule. He wanted to defeat the Philistines, but he did not want to deal with his own disobedience. And that can be us. But when we are ready to be honest with God, with others that we've been hiding things from, whether that's parents, spouse, boss, teacher, whatever it might be, if there's something like that that's hidden and held on to in your life, when you're ready, what will you expect from God? I think sometimes people fear being honest with God about their sin because they think, oh, God's just going to bring the hammer down. He's going to be disgusted with me. He's not going to want me. What do we get when we confess and forsake? Compassion. Compassion. I, I think the most vivid story of this, and I'll wrap up with this, is a parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15. It's the parable of the prodigal son. In this parable, Jesus tells the story of a man with two sons, and one of the sons says to his father, I, I want my inheritance now, basically saying, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. And he takes that, and he goes to a far country just to live life in reckless sin in all manner until he is in a crisis. He's impoverished, he's starving, and he decides, I'm going to go back. And he rehearses what he's going to say. And this is a picture of how God receives us as we come to him. I'll pick up at that point as he's rehearsing what he's going to say. This is in Luke 15, starting in verse 17. When he came to his senses, meaning he saw his behavior as it really was and the consequences of it, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? And verse 18, I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And he began to celebrate. Friends, that is what is waiting. Compassion. His arms around you, welcomed in. Let's pray.